right. So welcome to uh, this edition of the Breathe Easy podcast for the American Thoracic Society. Uh, the date of recording is Tuesday, March 24th uh, at noon. Uh, and we uh, have brought together a panel of pediatric sleep uh, experts to talk about uh, current events right now uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic and how that is uh, affecting pediatric sleep medicine and how we're dealing with that uh, within our centers. Uh, it feels like uh, to me, and I'm sure to most people, like the last week has seemed like a month and things are changing um, uh, hourly. So, uh, you know, what we say today or think today may not be uh, the case an hour from now or a day from now, but uh, we thought we would put together um, a group and talk about how we're dealing with challenges uh, uh, together to, to kind of put our heads together. So uh, I'm very pleased to have uh, several excellent guests today. I have uh, Dr. Maida Chen from Seattle Children's Hospital, um, Dr. Patwari from Rush uh, Medical Center in Chicago, uh, Dr. Kevin Smith, who's our behavioral sleep psychologist here at Children's Mercy, Dr. Bobby Hopkins from John Hopkins All Children's Hospital in Florida, and Dr. Mike McLeland uh, from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, so welcome to all. Thank you for being on the call today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, as you guys all know, we've all been following um, uh, and looking for recommendations for what the best uh, practices are right now for our sleep labs and our sleep clinics, uh, taking into account the, the current pandemic. Uh, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has put out some very nice resources uh, on their website for our, for our listeners. Uh, I would encourage them to look at it. If you go to the ASM.org website, there's uh, several pages within there that have valuable information. They put out a, a statement with uh, uh, considerations for sleep labs and in terms of mitigation strategies, uh, and that uh, they've broken down nicely into uh, minimally to moderate community spread versus substantial community spread, uh, and, and they go through some, uh, some very nice mitigation strategies in terms of who should testing be continued for or not continued for, uh, should home sleep study be employed or not? Uh, what's the role of telemedicine? Uh, the ASM has also done a very nice job of putting together a, uh, a recording, uh, interviewing some, uh, uh, some people from sleep uh, at Stanford University as well as the safety committee from the ASM. And I would encourage everybody to listen to that. It's a 20 or 30 minute uh, recording on their website where they talk about some of these issues uh, as well. Um, for ours, uh, specifically, uh, talking about pediatric sleep, Dr. Bobby Hopkins was kind enough to uh, do a survey on the PED Sleep Listserv, uh, went out to uh, a substantial number of pediatric sleep experts uh, within the United States and outside of the United States to query um, uh, what are our practice patterns right now and thoughts about this. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Hopkins, if you could uh, tell our, our listeners a little bit about uh, the survey and we can kind of start to, to go through each of the questions and discuss what data you found, uh, and then I'll open it up to our panel for uh, for their thoughts as well. Sure. Um, so the, the goal of the survey was just to sort of look at opinions, specifically pediatric sleep opinions, and help to look at a, a medical view of, of our specific patient population. Um, ultimately, we had about 59 people that answered, and I would have to say that the, the caveat for the listserv is that it's, it's physicians and um, sleep technologists and psychologists, so there's, there's potentially several different 
groups of people that were, were answering the questions. Um, one of the first questions that we asked was, during the COVID-19 pandemic, provide your recommendations regarding in-laboratory sleep testing. And the answers um, were polysonography should be discontinued for pediatric patients outside of emergent testing. Diagnostic polysonography should continue, but positive airway pressure titration should be deferred. Both diagnostic and titration studies should continue for all patients who wish to have testing regardless of comorbidity. Both diagnostic and titration studies should continue for patients without comorbid health conditions. And then I can't answer this question at this time. And basically this, this was trying to look at the, what were most people recommending from a medical perspective um, for testing. And nearly 70% of respondents said that it should really be um, discontinued at this time outside of emergent testing with another um, almost 14% stating that the diagnostic polysonography should continue, but positive airway pressure test titration should be deferred. That's interesting. Uh, so we have uh, uh, people from across the country on the line right now. So uh, for those of you uh, else on the call, um, what is your institution doing right now um, uh, with sleep lab testing? This is Meta Chen from Seattle, and um, we were largely considered um, the epicenter here in the U.S., and we really struggled with this question for quite a bit, and I'm sure like many centers, we had different operational strategies that went into effect, each of which lasted, it felt like, 12 hours before we had to change course again. Um, our responses were very largely driven by our public health here in King County um, and the Washington State DOH, as well as um, our state government in terms of aligning ourselves with those recommendations, um, which were changing really on a day-to-day -day basis. We opted on March 16th to close completely our lab, um, our outpatient lab. So we have a freestanding facility um, in the Children's Hospital. Our lab is actually um, not attached to it, it's at a separate location. Um, we had continued the weekend prior to the 16th with studies that were baseline diagnostic studies that we had considered otherwise low-risk patients. We had implemented um, hospital-wide screening at this off-site location, though we did not have the appropriate sort of personnel on site, so to speak, to do the same level of screening as we did at the main hospital. Um, and all those factors went into then uh, canceling and closing the lab completely on the 16th. Um, it remains so, and we plan on remaining closed until at least May at this point, um, and we are not rescheduling studies until the beginning of June at the earliest. For, uh, this is Paula V. Patwari in Chicago at Rush University Medical Center. I think um, for us, uh, for my experience, it seems to be pretty unique from what I'm hearing from other sleep centers. And I think that's because Rush um, is designated as a disaster center. So really, um, our entire hospital has been responding to this um, very proactively. And um, we've been very prepared, uh, I feel like and informed about 
what we need to do and how to make sure our patients are still taken care of. That being said, there's still some limits with what is truly possible for pediatric sleep medicine since uh, we're moving toward this telehealth type of care. And that's generally not available for, for kids. Can can you expand on on that a little bit, uh, Pallavi? Can you uh, what you, what you mean by that? Can you expand? Uh, yes. Yeah. So um, so uh, similar to, to Maya, we or Dr. Chen, I apologize. Um, we uh, closed our clinics and elective procedures last week. So I think we started doing that uh, March 16th, um, and then for our um, specifically for pediatric sleep, we shut everything down um, by March 18th. Um, and uh, that really also applies for majority of the hospital. Um, the challenge, and is why I sent out uh, to the email list, is what do we do with these kids who have big tonsils and they need surgeries in the ENT? The surgical teams are saying, um, we can't do elective procedures. This kid's been living with OSA and, you know, what's a couple weeks waiting, but now I'm concerned that our, our delay in care may be much longer than a couple weeks. Um, the telemedicine part, our hospital's been rolling out since August in pieces, and last week they basically had the whole uh, hospital and all physicians uh, trained and converted to be able to provide these video and telephone visits. Interesting. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, and Mike, uh, you're at Washington University in St. Louis, and you're also on the board of directors of BRPT. Uh, what are you hearing from your techs, and, and how are you guys doing with this in, in St. Louis? So at St. Louis Children's Hospital, we did close um last week and we're still doing inpatient sleep studies which have increased now that we have that capability of staffing to do that um but yeah i think it's a huge concern through um what i've what i've been hearing from the tech side of it um of course not knowing um really what to do and um and we're still having to, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion still is because, you know, here we are accredited labs, so we're still having to figure out how we're going to do CPAP compliance. And if people are having problems with their masks, how are we going to deal with that? Um, so we're still working through a lot, um, even though we abruptly closed it. There wasn't much decision. It was just the hospital told us we had to close. Um, unfortunately, we're located in the hospital, right? With the HEMOC floor. Um, so I totally understand, but now trying to figure out how to take care of our patients still has been difficult. Yeah. Um, Bobby, one, one thing that you asked about in your survey was what patient populations uh, should have testing deferred, um, I think was your next question there. What did you guys find? So I listed a, a bunch of different patient populations, hoping not to bias people um, toward one or the other. And in general, um, the majority of people felt that patients with 
underlying immunodeficiencies, chronic lung disease, asthma, that those patients should have their testing deferred. There was also um, almost 80% of respondents think felt that patients with diabetes should also have their testing deferred. Um, what was interesting is that there was, um, for patients that should have, have their testing performed, it was mostly um, patients that were young, like infants, patients with Down syndrome, patients with neuromuscular disorders, um, achondroplasia, and um, obesity. Those, those patients were more likely between 25 to 30% of responders thought that they should continue to have their studies performed. And again, this study was, this survey was performed last week. I don't know if people would change their minds at this time, but, um, you know, it's, it's about 30% thought, well, maybe we can go ahead and perform testing for those specific comorbid conditions, but uh, for patients that have underlying chronic lung disease or immunodeficiency, then majority felt that it was not um, why to do testing at this time. That's interesting. And something that uh, uh, several people have already mentioned is the uh, possibility of doing televisits uh, uh, and telehealth and using that instead of in-person visits. Uh, has anybody on the uh, call, either in Seattle or Chicago or Florida uh, or St. Louis, uh, been able to implement that successfully? And if so, uh, what platform are you using and, and how is that going for you? Here in Seattle, we have rolled out telemedicine, um, and it's been both a telemedicine. Um, initially, it was clinic to clinic um, for because we have a large geographic touch area of five states, um, but now we are currently doing telehealth from um, home to home. So the provider is either at home or in their office, um, ideally at home, and then the patient is at home. Um, we have used various platforms, including both Zoom and InTouch. I would say um, both platforms have had a lot of technical glitches over the last week, and I think it's just purely bandwidth and it's purely um, just the sheer volume of number of people trying to get onto limited bandwidth around here. Um, they're just completely saturated. So we've had some technical difficulties with that. Um, our families have all been incredibly responsive, and I would say that for the majority of patients where um, either a telephone visit or a telehealth visit were completed, that at least there was a plan in place and next steps were outlined, even if that meant sort of unfortunately further deferring that sleep study. I do think that we were able to use those calls a lot of times to identify those kids that we were placing on a higher priority list for when the lab does reopen to get them in sooner rather than later. And we've identified a rare couple of kids where we're really contemplating an inpatient study for these kids. Obviously, that's heavily, heavily um, confounded by all the risks of coming into the hospital at this kind of time. Um, but certainly, we were able to triage and identify those kids that we were most concerned about who had been unfortunately already waiting a long time for their initial sleep consults and sleep studies. Um, the rules around telemedicine, I think, just being relaxed in terms of what platforms are now waiving HIPAA. Um, so we have used our fair share of FaceTime and Facebook Messenger um, and uh, Google Meetings and, um, uh, you know, whatever has been available uh, just to get through to our patients. Um, we have a lot of patients in rural areas, in rural Idaho and Montana and eastern Washington, 
who frankly just don't have very stable Wi-Fi platforms as well, which has been contributing to the issue. So for a lot of those patients, we've had to do um, more straightforward phone calls. For um, here in Chicago, again, we've been, all right, we meaning the hospital, have been trying to roll out telemedicine and our system right now is all through Epic and the, the mobile Epic, the Haiku and Canto, so that we can connect to families on a HIPAA compliant platform. Um, they've developed a system where the patient um, checks in uh, through the app, the hospital app, and then when the patient is ready, it shows up on my schedule, uh, just like the, if they were ready and roomed and ready for me to come in. So there's a little alert there so I can um, click the chart open and then click another button that says video, connect to video. Um, so it's, it's actually been really nice for someone who is not as tech savvy as I should be. Interesting. How about there in Florida? In Florida, they've been, um, at our institution, they've been rolling out telemedicine slowly uh, from last year, and sleep has not yet uh, come up for telemedicine, but we're anticipating starting within the next couple of weeks as they've accelerated their rollout. So um, we're excited for that to get started. A couple of issues uh, uh, have come up with regard to positive airway pressure, and I'd love to get you guys' opinion on this. Uh, one is, um, uh, as you guys have already alluded to, some patients, you know, uh, we know have sleep apnea. Maybe they had their sleep study done right before the lab was closed, and now we're reading it, interpreting it. Uh, but it is impossible to get the adenotonsillectomy right now. Uh, and so how would we treat that patient now? The idea of uh, we can't do a CPAP titration uh, in the sleep lab, so uh, would it be possible to just put them on auto-titrating CPAP, uh, something we don't, you know, that is more commonly done in adults but can be done in kids. And I'll say in this last week, I've put a couple of kids on auto-CPAP auto because that's uh, what's been uh, available. Uh, uh, that was uh, something that was asked about in, in the survey that you, you did there, Bobby. Uh, what, what did survey respondents uh uh, 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 say in, in your survey? The vast majority of responders felt that the use of AutoPath was indicated, um, but there were some changes with regard to age at which that might be implemented. About, I don't know, 60% of the final um, group that was responded felt that um, AutoPath was indicated, and with the majority feeling that it was it was indicated greater than 12 years of age, and greater than eight years of age also seemed to be acceptable. There was over 20% that felt that AutoPath could be implemented at any age, as long as the patient did not have comorbidities. And that was also how the survey was worded: is that these AutoPath would be a good option for children without comorbidities. And I know that we typically, it's not uncommon for us to prescribe autopath for kids that are greater than 12 years of age without comorbid comorbidities or without significant central apnea on their diagnostic study. Um, going down as low as two or three would be 
atypical, and I haven't um, I've done that yet. So in Seattle, we have been using AutoPath as our first-line CPAP for probably the better part since 2011. Um, so for us, that has not been a major change, and most of our kids started on CPAP. Uh, mass CPAP are on AutoPath in some way, shape, or form. Um, I feel like that's been driven a lot by our local BMEs and what they have carried. I would say that our bigger challenge has been really with the younger children who we think would be safe for a conventional CPAP machine who the DMEs have really said, based on their age and weight, need to be on a ventilator type of device. Um, and we all know trilogies at the moment um, and Asheville to some extent are really in short order and probably at this point should be prioritized for hospital use. So that's been, um, it's a very small percentage of, of kids for sure, but um, that's certainly been an issue that we've run into here. Um, I would say in terms of PATH in general, uh, especially for those who are on bi-level, um, we've really tried to prioritize pulmonary health um, in the sense that if you are somebody who needed non-invasive ventilation for support, either due to neuromuscular conditions, central apnea related to achondroplasia, or restrictive lung disease, whatnot, that we have felt the need to prioritize getting those kids started on their PATH really to help them through respiratory viral season regardless of what virus it is. I think all of us feel that push in the winter months, um, but even more so now just with the COVID pandemic. Um, from my experience, um, I've had difficulty getting auto CPAP for kids. Um, the DME companies that I go through um, insist on a titration study, so I haven't been using too much auto PAP. But I was really reassured that there's a couple of nice papers out um, from the PEDS sleep group um, that support the use of auto CPAP. So um, I think that's pretty exciting and something that um, we'll have to learn more about and who's the right patient for this uh, at-home titration. The one thing I worry about also is, I should say the other thing I worry about is the close follow-up I usually do for kids and parents to make sure they're compliant because if I don't see them in that first month, a lot of times they just stop using it and the machine is taken away before I even uh, hear back from the family. I think that's one area where telemed, um, which we have rolled out specifically for CPAP compliance and that face-to-face -face check, um, that's one area where we had that technology and that service in place prior to all of this hitting the fan. And so it's been great to be able to continue that part of it. Um, uh, but that was actually something our hospital managed to prioritize before all of this, strangely enough, so we got lucky on that one. But uh, that face-to-face -face by video has been really helpful for that first, within that first uh, one to three months follow-up of a CPAP start. Excellent. The other uh, issue with regard to PAP uh, that that comes up is uh, we may get a phone call from a parent or a family uh, asking uh, if someone in the home has uh, COVID-19 or suspected COVID-19, should they continue to use their PAP at home? Uh, or should they pause using their PAP uh, with the theoretical uh, risk of aerosolizing uh, disease? Uh, and, and how would you uh, uh, field that question? Our stance 
um, in Seattle has been that if you were prescribed, I mean, knowing that most children um, are not on path for, I'm going to put it in air quotes here, bread and butter OSA, um, I think a lot of our kids who are on path and more importantly on bi-level um, are on it for medical comorbidities. And so our line has been that if you were on path and prescribed path, particularly bi-level, prior to all of this happening, to please stay on it because somewhere somebody has deemed you needing that support for a pulmonary standpoint. Um, and so we've encouraged people to continue it if they were prescribed it prior. Um, we have not really run into the situation as of yet where a family has called us saying, should we stop it for a kid who's on it um, for more straightforward obstructive sleep apnea? So in Florida, I wonder if we should actually be calling. That was something that came across in the survey. A couple of the comments said that they were um, starting to call families to talk about using positive airway pressure, especially since part of the ASM um, instructions to patients talks about whether or not a person should continue to use positive airway pressure for their sleep apnea. And my, my main concern would be that a patient that a family would be unaware of the problems that can occur should a asymptomatic or symptomatic patient use positive airway pressure with an at-risk caregiver in the room. And that disseminating that information would be particularly important for the caregivers that are at risk. That's a very good point. Uh, Okay, uh, one question that I have for you guys as well is uh, most of us are at uh, institutions uh, that have trainees, fellows, sleep fellows. Um, how have you been adjusting uh, their training during this time? How do you keep them involved uh, at the same time as you are trying to keep them healthy? So in um, Seattle, University of Washington has come out, the University of Washington School of Medicine has come out with um, guidelines in terms of what to do with trainees. And we have three uh, sleep fellows, two of whom are pediatric track. Um, and it has for sure been challenging. Um, they, we have experimented, it's been a, a sort of a day-to-day -day new um, experiment in terms of what fulfills their need for education, but also keeps everybody safe. We have, um, since all of our clinics and all of our outpatient clinics across the institution are closed right now to in-person visits for anything that is other than absolutely essential, we've had our fellows at times join us on Zoom visits. Um, at times we have had them do, uh, just like we would with a traditional sort of fellow clinic model where they call the family first. Um, family has then sort of called back once the attending has been looped in um, and a conference call occurs. We've had them doing more polysoms just to catch up um, with our interpretation and have them look through our catalog of educational polysoms that are sort of plastic for certain findings. We've also taken this opportunity to have them identify areas that they feel um, they would like some more um, learning in specific to like their boards and their fellowship in particular. Um, but it's been, it's for sure been a challenge. Um, 
especially now that uh, sleep is, I, you know, I don't actually know if APS that has officially canceled yet, but I would imagine they would soon, and certainly APS has been canceled. So anybody who was presenting there, we are having them continue on with those things, and less so with a physical poster, but certainly assembling that information so that they can have a similar experience with putting together those sorts of academic endeavors. But it has definitely been challenging. In Chicago, um, so I can say I don't have any uh, pediatric background fellows, so they've actually, all my fellows have been pulled to the adult side um, to help with um, covering patient care. And, and from what I understand, too, is that um, some of these trainees are being spared a potential exposure in case we need to pull them uh, in as the the counts of this virus go up and and we see more COVID cases in the hospital. Um, we have uh, some online sources for education, some modules, um, things like that. So it definitely is not ideal, but uh, our program director for the fellowship is really doing the best that we can. Bobby, um, uh, any other questions we didn't cover in the survey that you did? I think we, we hit on most of them. Any any others I missed? Well, one of the interesting ones was talking about if in laboratory polysomnography is the standard of care, but we're unable to perform it for a period of time, would we be considering any other potential testing for obstructive sleep apnea. And um, the choices were home sleep testing, watch pad, oximetry, and then none of the above. And um, nearly 70% of the responders said that none of the, the testing, the alternatives to testing would be appropriate for children. Um, however, if we were to be in a place where diagnostic polysomnography in the laboratory was was not recommended for a period of time. Oximetry was felt to be the preferred method with home sleep testing and watch pad as, as second option. Um, the main concern was that if you had a home test of any type, that then when the material is returned, then it might be um, contaminated with the virus as well. So. Some suggestions were to use the um, disposable versions um, or to let it sit in for a period of time um, for 72 hours without um, anyone from the lab touching it when it returns. So I've used um, the home sleep testing uh, with limited capacity um, even before all of this, in the older kids, teenagers, generally healthy, um, with adult pathophysiology, so obesity, hypertension. Um, and I've been really impressed with how smoothly that goes. And I um, can really get a good sense if they have sleep apnea or not based on the HST data. The device that I use um, is FDA approved for two years and above. So, um, so it's reassuring in that way that I 
feel it's okay to use it in maybe younger kids, but I think there's definitely a certain population for in children that this can be a useful tool for. Um, we just have to figure that out. Like, what are the what are the qualities for these patients, and are parents interested in this? I have a unofficial um, data. Uh, looking at how many parents actually are interested in a home sleep test or not. And I was very surprised to see that um, almost 50% of the families were not interested in doing the home sleep test. So it's not only just accessibility, but is there interest from the family end? That is, that is very surprising to hear that. Actually, I would have suspected most would be very interested in doing a home sleep study. It seems like every day uh, I get the question, can we do this at home? <laughs> uh kind of a thing so but, but thank you for sharing that so we're a freestanding peds only sleep lab and because of that we've never invested in home testing um so we have no hsats or watch tests that are directly available to us at this point in time which made that question easy for me to at least think through um we've definitely relied on optimetry um up to, you know, over this last week for patients that were, especially on the younger side, at trying to figure out, um, again, trying to help us triage whether we needed to bring these kids in for an inpatient study um, or if we felt like they didn't have enough of a high, or they had a fairly low hypoxic burden that it could be tabled until after um, May or so. Um, however, our governor yesterday put a essentially a shelter in place order in so I'm honestly not sure what's going to happen as of today with um, sending those RTs from the DMEs out to the home. I don't think it's going to happen. I'd like to mention too that um, some of the components for these home state testing uh, devices like the cannula um, can be uh, and the bands can be discarded, and the rest of the items can easily be wiped down with cavicide or um, whatever is appropriate, which should be sufficient to clean them. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, before we pivot uh, to a new topic, uh, we have been talking about the sleep lab and the sleep clinic for medical providers. Anything else uh, any of you, Maida, Pallavi, uh, Mike, uh, or Bobby would add before we pivot to a new subject? No. Okay, excellent. So uh, I will now pivot over to Dr. Kevin Smith. Uh, Kevin uh, is my colleague here at Children's Mercy. He is a behavioral sleep psychologist. Uh, and Kevin, I, I asked you to be on uh, because something that uh, we're going to be dealing with, if we aren't already, uh, I've already gotten a few calls there, is acute insomnia. Uh, you know, this, uh, this pandemic, to put it mildly, can uh, kind of disrupt uh, a person's sense of peace and well-being uh, and, and cause anxiety and, and contribute to insomnia. Uh, I know I've already gotten a couple of messages about this. Uh, if you were to get a message uh, from a family asking about this, uh, uh, how would you advise them? 
Well, I, I have already, so I, I think you're right. I think this is going to be a, a, a common question. I, mean, I think there are two main issues that parents are probably dealing with that could affect their child's sleep. One is managing the fear, anxiety, stress associated with the coronavirus, but also uh, managing the effects that their child's disrupted sleep schedule or disrupted schedule in general uh, could have on their on their sleep. Um, as far as managing the fear and stress, I think we as providers can tell parents um, not to be afraid to discuss the coronavirus, but do it in a developmentally appropriate way. Um, I would recommend starting the conversation by asking the child if they have any questions about things that they've heard or seen versus taking the lead. Um, I think when uh, adults take the lead sometimes in something like this, we can end up volunteering too much information, um, which can be overwhelming and, and stressful. Um, also, just providing simple reassurance and reminding children that there are experts out there, doctors, researchers who are learning as much as they can about the virus as quickly as possible to, to keep us safe. And also talk about what we can do, what the child can do um, to keep safe as well. Uh, good hand hygiene, um, coughing into a tissue or their sleeves, um, social distancing, trying not to touch your face. Um, that helps kids to take an active role and feel more in control of the, of the situation. Um, finally, I would say, and this may, maybe I should have led with this, but monitoring their media consumption. Um, for the little kids, parents can serve as the filter um, and, and be the consumer of the uh, media and information and then talk to their kids about it as needed. Um, for teens, that's a little harder, and I, I think it's just keeping that dialogue open and talking about what they may have seen and what may have been um, disruptive. So um, now we have a disrupted schedule um, with with kids with the cancellation of school. Um, I don't know about any of you, but I haven't necessarily kept my sleep schedule the way I should. Uh, full disclosure, I'm um, maybe so staying up a little later than than normal, and I think that I don't know if it's just me. Um, and uh, that, I think that's really natural with families right now. But really encouraging um, encouraging to keep what we uh, maintain what we can. So you can maintain a good um, sleep-wake schedule, maintain um, consistent meal and snack times, um, and, and actually creating a schedule for uh, your child, whether it's uh, blocking off school time to do the lessons or even just scheduling things like going for a walk. Kids uh, who have schedules are going to just probably feel more secure um, in general. That's that's a great point, Kevin, in terms of uh, ritual and schedule. I can tell you, you know, we have a six-year-old at home, and today, or yesterday, rather, uh, you know, at-home school kind of uh, started, so uh, a teleschool, if you will. Uh, and so it was very nice to, for us to have that schedule in place uh, and kind of put things back on track uh, in our house. Uh, so so that's that's great information. Uh, so So you're talking to the parent on the phone, and then they say, you know, uh, Doc, uh, this I'm having trouble sleeping too. Uh, as an adult, you know, I'm up at night worried, etc. Uh, what can I do? I, you know, someone with acute insomnia. Yeah, so I've got I got that question as well um, already. And again, again, that's going to be something that increases. Um, interestingly, that some of the things I recommended for kids, I I would also recommend 
for adults. I, I would definitely would put um, media consumption at the top of the list, um, but just to be mindful of how you feel while you're, you know, you know on social media or, or on YouTube, um, do you notice that your anxiety level is increasing, either just emotionally or it might present as um, somatically, tension in shoulders, um, headache, uh, and, and and just be aware of that. Everybody's going to be different and everyone has a different um, level of tolerance, but know when to unplug and take a break from it. Um, also, scheduling wind down time and really protecting that 30 to 60 minutes um, before before bedtime is something that's relaxing and, and something that uh, preferably does not have to do with a coronavirus. Um, routine is a big one for adults as well. and, and uh, it could be really a, a there's a wide variety there. There are some who are working less right now at home um, until a new plan is figured out for their job, and there are some who are actually working more hours and on the line. Um, so, as best you can, not forgetting the things that keep us healthy: the eating regularly, getting some exercise, and trying to keep a good sleep schedule. Um, and then just the, the basics that we should be doing all the time, right? Creating the ideal sleep environment, um, you know, having a bed that's comfortable, not too warm, not too cool, um, limiting our caffeine and alcohol intake. There could be a tendency, I think, either with uh, stress uh, or free time to, um, you know, either increase uh, caffeine intake and really watching that. Um, and for people who may need a little more, there are certainly some uh, electronic um, resources out there. You know, one category could be to try some uh, either apps or websites that help with relaxation, um, diaphragmatic breathing, um, guided imagery, or even white noise. And for some people, just having that distraction at night could be enough for, to manage acute insomnia. Um, if someone may need more, there's an app that I would recommend, um, CBT-I Coach, so that's CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy um, for Insomnia Coach. It was developed by the Veterans Administration. It's free um, and it's pretty easy uh, to use. So if you need additional help, those those could be tools that you could access. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, that, that is very useful information. Um, uh, before we wrap up, uh, anybody on the panel have anything else that they would uh, want to share with the audience? Uh, so I am so glad that you included this talk about uh, in this part about insomnia because I I think that the stress for kids and families being home and not really understanding what this means is huge. Um, and uh, what has been going around is one app called Headspace is free to physicians. And I don't know if anyone has experienced that app. I haven't used it yet. I've tried it out. I think it's a, I think it's a good, I think it's a good app and I love that it's, yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. I love that it's free right now for physicians as well. Can you tell us what that app is used for? So that would I, that app kind of focuses more on the um, relaxation end of the spectrum um, and, a, and, a, and a mindfulness approach, which I really like. It really helps you to kind of be in tune with how you're feeling in the moment. And I think that 
because things are so disrupted right now, that's that's a challenge for for people. So um, it has some um, nice options for guided imagery and um, progressive muscle relaxation and diaphragmatic breathing. A lot of good um, relaxation options. Plus, they they throw in some um, cognitive pieces as well. Kevin, does it also have, um, like Calm, where it has the pediatric component, where they have some sleep stories, where you have a, just a, it enables the kids to occupy their thoughts as they go to sleep with somebody that's relaxing? And is it, does Headspace have that as well? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I know, I know the ones on Calm, um, I've tried, but I'm not sure if Headspace has that or not. Are there pediatric sleep apps that you would recommend? I haven't seen a, a specific app that's focused just on sleep and peds. I would say there are probably more um, more YouTube uh, channels that focus more on kids, um, not the CBTI sort of approach, but more of a relaxation um, approach. Um, Dave, we can, we can offer some links in the uh, the uh, podcast description. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. So um, we'll get some links on there um, that focuses on that area as well. And I think, Kevin, you you were involved in uh, making some videos for that babysleep.com uh, for younger kids, like infants and toddlers. Uh, I found that's a nice resource. Yes. Babysleep. Uh, so B-A-B-Y-S-L-E-B.com. Um, it's a... Uh, a website that's full of empirically supported treatments and information um, for infants, um, toddlers, even school-age kids. It's well-indexed um, because kids are going to have their normal sleep issues too, um, you know, beyond the coronavirus. So yes, that's a great that's a great website. It's very easy to use and um, and multimedia too. If you like to um, read versus watch a video, there are many different options. Thank you. All right. Well, um, we will wrap it up then. Uh, I want to thank um, all of our guests, uh, Drs. Chen, Patwari, Smith, Hopkins, and Nick Leland for uh, joining us on very short notice to uh, uh, give us some insights into what's going on in their centers. And, uh, and it's really heartening to have a, a wonderful community uh, uh, within pediatric sleep to be able to talk and, and support each other. And uh, I'm very appreciative of uh, our colleagues everywhere. Uh, so thank you again uh, for being here with us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate uh, it. And to you guys and everybody listening, uh, stay well uh, and uh, hope to talk to you uh, not too far in the, in the future. Be well.